So welcome back to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. My name is Aaron Bauer, one of the neurology residents here at Yale. Today we are going to continue our discussions of movement disorders with the ever-esteemed Dr. Sarah Schaefer. And today we're going to talk about dystonia. So good morning, Dr. Schaefer. Good morning. So the plan for today was to go through what can kind of be a very diverse and interesting movement disorder, but one that is quite common, and that's going to be dystonia. So to start, would you be able to just provide us of a general definition for what we're going to be talking about today? Sure. Yeah. Dystonia is a, is a weird one. It's a weird one. And there, there are a lot of different ways that it manifests. And, and actually, way back in history, it, it was considered functional because of some of the weird things that there is related to this disorder. So uh, dystonia is a hyperkinetic movement disorder. So with uh, that's characterized by increased muscle tone in usually muscles that are contracting and co-contracting. So that results in an abnormal posturing or twisting of the body, the affected body part. For example, if it's cervical dystonia or in the neck, you know, muscles on both sides contracting against each other and making the head turn or twist in a certain way really spans the age range in terms of when this can happen. And there are lots and lots of different etiologies for dystonia, which I think we're going to get into. But generally, we talk about it in terms of a couple of different, you know, basic categories. So one is in terms of the distribution. So is it focal? Is it in one body part? Is it segmental? Uh, Meaning, is it in two contiguous body parts? So we often see this in like the head and the voice, for example, or the head, uh, head, neck, and uh, one or two arms. Those are contiguous body parts versus multifocal, which is in non-contiguous body parts. So the head and the foot, for example. Versus hemidystonia, which is, uh, you know, obviously on one side of the body versus generalized dystonia. So in, in many different body parts, including the trunk and often the generalized dystonias are genetic syndromes. And then dystonia can be a primary dystonia. So, you know, um, often genetic or, or idiopathic versus a secondary dystonia, for example, from dopamine blockade um, causing, you know, acute dystonic reactions and, and things like that. And then, you know, in terms of additional ways that we might categorize this, there are dystonias that are task specific. So dystonias that only happen when you do certain tasks versus non-task specific dystonias so that are present sort of with many different tasks. I think that's a very good overview to start with, and especially just making sure that we're prioritizing it as a hyperkinetic movement disorder, which is a good place to start for a lot of very early trainees. In terms of epidemiology, this is a very common disorder, right? From what I could find, it seems about 20% of patients that come into the movement disorders clinic actually come in for evaluation of dystonia. And some literature stated it was about the third most common um, that you all see in the movement disorders clinic after, of course, Parkinson's and essential tremor. Would you say you see it at about that frequency or a little less or more? Yeah, it's really common. And actually, I see dystonia in Parkinson's disease and in essential tremor as well. <laughs> so dystonia can be the, the presenting symptom of Parkinson's disease, uh, as well as other 
you know, Parkinsonisms, uh, most classically corticobasal syndrome can present with unilateral dystonia. And then people with essential tremor, you know, there's a big overlap between essential tremor and dystonia. People with essential tremor for decades can develop some dystonic posturing and families uh, that have uh, essential tremor in the family history, you know, some people may have more pure essential tremor and other people in that same family may have more dystonia. So there's a lot of overlap. And, you know, if you're talking about just dystonia by itself, yeah, it is probably the most third most common thing that I see in my clinic. It's never that clear cut, though, I'm sure. (laughs) No. (laughs) And you mentioned a little earlier, a little bit about age. Uh, And in terms of grouping dystonias and grouping their presentations. In terms of the age of onset, is there a general kind of rule of thumb you follow for early versus a later onset of dystonia? Not really. I mean, I don't see kids, right? So uh, I'm an adult movement disorder specialist. So when dystonia presents in kids, it's it's kind of a different ballgame. The one thing that I would say is that when when we get to treatment and talk about dopa responsive dystonias, that's something that I consider as something that I need to think about only in younger folks. And I would say I think about it if if the dystonia has started under maybe age 40, I would think about that. Um, and we'll talk about why that's such an important thing to think about. But yeah, dystonia can happen at any age. And, uh, and I've certainly seen it across the spectrum in, in the adult population. But, but then them telling me that, oh, yeah, I was always clumsy as a kid. I did terribly in gym class. And, and this has been going on for a while. <laughs> gotcha. Is there any considerations regarding um, actual like patient sex in terms of the types of dystonias or maybe differences based on you know, female to male in terms of types of dystonias? Yeah, so it sort of depends on the dystonia. So one of the most common dystonias, isolated dystonias that we see in our clinic is cervical dystonia. So dystonia of the head and neck, and that is more common in females. Other than cervical dystonia, I don't really think about the male-female stuff too much. It's more what other risk factors there are in terms of overuse of the affected body part. So I think that covers some of the epidemiologic considerations that we were going to discuss. If it's okay with you, perhaps we can try and clear up a somewhat muddy subject of the pathophysiology of dystonia, dystonia, which I, you know, at least from my review for this podcast seems to be rather unclear at times. Yeah. And I, uh, I commend you for trying to figure it out because it's, it's a very muddy subject. It's true. You know, there, there's even a lot of lack of clarity about how much the basal ganglia itself is involved versus the cerebellum. There, there seems to be a cerebellar component to dystonia. Um, obviously, the basal ganglia is involved. In, and, you know, when, when we get to treatment, we can talk about sometimes we do deep brain stimulation for these patients. And the target for that is GPI. And it does help with um, certain types of dystonia more than others. But there have been a lot of theories about what might be going on. You know, um, there's one theory about surround inhibition, which is when you're doing 
things that uh, need a lot of dexterity, a lot of uh, a lot of very specific movements, for example, of your hand. You know, you need to flex this finger and extend this finger in order to do something well, um, that there might be a lack of what's called surround inhibition, where where the, you know, the nervous impulses to those various muscles you uh, are telling you to activate one muscle while inhibiting the surrounding muscles so that you can really be very fine tuned about your fine motor control. And maybe that that is broken in dystonia. And then there's also, you know, the role of sort of the sensory input and sensory motor pathways, because uh, there's a there's a funny feature of dystonia called a sensory trick. And this is something that can be really helpful diagnostically, but also can give us a little bit of a hint as to what might be going patho, uh, going on pathophysiologically. So patients, for example, with cervical dystonia, sometimes they, if they just touch their chin uh, lightly, or they put their head on the headrest in the car, this will correct a lot of the dystonic posturing and p- potentially the dystonic tremor as well. And it's not that they're holding their head in place. It's not a forceful action. It's it's a light um, sensory input uh, that's fixing the dystonia. And there have been studies where they've somebody else has touched their chin or something else has touched their chin and it doesn't work as well. It, it works the best if the patient themselves is touching their own chin. So there's clearly something about the way that the brain is processing that sensory information, the proprioceptive information, et cetera, that is feeding into the motor output. So it's very complicated and very interesting, um, but not completely understood for sure. Yeah, definitely something that's a work in progress for sure within the, the movement disorders uh, field. But I think hitting on some of the surround inhibition and this sensory involvement, and particularly knowing the sensory trick, you know, will hopefully provide some insight. And it definitely seems to be a pretty distributed dysfunction across a few different circuits. Now, I know we touched on this a little bit in the beginning, um, but maybe for a little bit of repetition, we can discuss some of the ways in which we may bucket off dystonias. And I think one of the ones that you alluded to in the beginning was the distribution with which we see dystonias. Yeah, so that's the focal, segmental, multifocal, hemidystonia, and generalized dystonia. And really, this helps us make determinations, etiological determinations. If somebody has generalized dystonia, you're going to be thinking about a genetic condition. If they have really focal dystonia, you're going to want to decide if it could be task-specific and related to overuse, for example, in guitar players, musicians' dystonia, or writer's cramp with somebody who does a lot of writing, or, you know, there's something called the yips that is, uh, I've heard it for both baseball and golf, where people get a hand dystonia related to holding the golf club in a certain way, or pitching with a baseball pitcher. There's runner's dystonia, where people will get a foot dystonia when they run. And this is Uh, you know, there can be really weird things, which is why it used to be felt to be potentially functional. Like, for example, somebody gets a foot dystonia only when they run forward, but not when they run backwards. And so so if they run backwards, it's not there. And you're like, what? (laughs) But it's because it's very task specific. So outside of distribution, then, are there certain parts about maybe the progression of the symptoms or when these symptoms occur for the dystonia that can help guide you? Well, you know, even focal dystonias tend 
to get worse over time, in my experience, or at least they change over time. You know, somebody might start with a cervical dystonia with a certain head direction, uh, you know, direction in one way, and then it kind of evolves. Or people with isolated cervical dystonia may develop a segmental dystonia over time where it starts to involve the voice or involve, uh, involve the hands. And this is just plain common. Obviously, if it's an acute onset dystonia, right, you're going to be thinking about some sort of event, either a, the patient getting a medication, like a dopamine blocking medication, or having a stroke or something. You know, if, if they have hemidystonia that's of acute onset, you're going to be looking at an MRI of their brain, obviously. So in that way, that can be helpful. One thing I came across perhaps is something regarding diurnal fluctuations in some specific dystonias, um, particularly the dopa-responsive dystonias. Yeah, so so dopa-responsive dystonias is what I alluded to earlier that is uh, is generally more in, of childhood onset or at least of young onset. And dopa-responsive, you know, that's self-explanatory. It means that if you give them levodopa, that they actually improve. And, and it can take very small amounts of levodopa to have an enormous impact on the patient, which is why this is something that you always want to keep in your mind, because giving them a, a levodopa trial is pretty low risk and could have enormous benefit for the patient. And dopa-responsive dystonias have this strange characteristic sometimes uh, which is called diurnal fluctuations or fluctuations in the severity of the dystonia related to the circadian rhythm. So diurnal fluctuations, it, it, classically, the patient wakes up in the morning and feels pretty good. And then as the day progresses, the dystonia worsens. So in keeping with the circadian rhythm. Didn't really see that come up with any of the other ones. And I think I've seen that in some questions before as well, which may be one little hint just to think about and keep in the back of the mind in the setting of test taking. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. That's a really easy thing to test on, right? So something, a nice little pearl for the listeners. One of the things that I thought maybe we could touch on briefly, and I think we've kind of alluded to already, is the concept of, you know, isolated dystonias versus some of these combined or more complex dystonias. Um, I think maybe that's a bit of a distinction we can at least mention for our listeners to be aware of. Yeah. So in any movement disorders patient, you know, there can be a lot of overlap between different conditions. And so you want to look for other things, right? You want to look for Parkinsonism. You want to look for myoclonus. You want to look for uh, long tract signs. So, you know, upper motor neuron signs like spasticity, hyperreflexia, and that can give you a clue as to what diseases you might be dealing with. I mentioned that dystonia can sometimes be the presenting symptom of Parkinson's disease, often foot dystonia, unilateral foot dystonia. We really follow these patients to see if they develop Parkinsonism. There's a specific uh, genetic syndrome called DYT11, uh, myoclonus dystonia that starts in childhood as well. And Patients can be kind of in a variable, variably along the spectrum between myoclonus and dystonia. Some are very mixed. Some have much more myoclonus. Some have much more dystonia. So those are things you want to look for. Are there any systemic uh, conditions outside of, you know, these overlaps with other movement disorders, be it the Parkinsonism, dystonia, and spasticity, um, maybe that are a little bit more 
systemically present in the patient. Um, usually, I'd assume this would be a little bit of a younger population as well. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I check ceruloplasmin a lot in my patients. So if they're young and they come in with any kind of movement disorder, that's something you just need to rule out is, is Wilson's disease because they can present with an enormous variety of movement disorders, tremor, Parkinsonism, dystonia. So that's always something you want to think about, especially because it's treatable. And then, you know, the dystonia has been, has been reported in lots of other metabolic diseases and um, childhood onset, you know, genetic diseases. So it's so variable and presents with so many different types of diseases and things that especially in the younger population, you want to make sure that you're getting a good family history, that you're thinking about other organ systems and whether there's unexplained involvement of other organ systems like the liver or the eyes or, you know, other uh, areas of the body that might be affected and, and you can tie it all together into, into one nice package of, of a genetic syndrome. There definitely is very few things that are as satisfying as having a nice unifying diagnosis. Right? Occam's <laughs> razor. Love it. <laughs> now, in terms of, I think that kind of brings us along a little bit into the logic considerations as well. I mean, the number of things that can be inheritable in terms of dystonia, I mean, it can really run the gamut of autosomal dominant, recessive, X-linked, and even mitochondrial. Is that about right? Yes. <laughs> I think it would be difficult to do a comprehensive review of all the genetics of dystonia because, yeah, it could be any. It could be mm -hmm. any of the above, all of the above, <laughs> or idiopathic. <laughs> or, you know, um, the, the people with task-specific dystonias or idiopathic dystonias probably have some kind of genetic predisposition or predilection to getting dystonia, and, and maybe it's because of some combination of genes that are interacting with each other and you need a multi-hit sort of situation in order to have the increased risk. You know, there are plenty of guitar players who don't get task-specific dystonias, musicians' dystonias, and then there are those that do. So what's the difference between them, right? And probably genetics is there somewhere. No, that definitely makes sense in terms of at least lowering the threshold and making somebody at risk of developing these more task-specific dystonias. And I know earlier you had mentioned, you know, the possibility of like getting brain imaging or an MRI for maybe something like an acquired or a secondary dystonia. Are there any specific things that would really tip you off to want to kind of pursue additional workup for these patients outside of, you know, we'll table all the genetic considerations? Well, unless somebody presents with a very classic gradual onset, idiopathic, cervical dystonia in a middle-aged woman or something like that, I, I'm usually going to be getting brain imaging uh, just to make sure. You know, you never know that there could be some kind of heavy metal deposition or, you know, obviously if, if there's acute onset or, or some very subacute onset as opposed to a more chronic percolating kind of onset, then you're going to be more likely to get imaging on those patients. Because anything that affects the basal ganglia or the cerebellum, you know, could cause some dystonia. And so it's important to rule out. The other big category that we see, especially in the pediatric population, is dystonic cerebral palsy. And cerebral palsy, you know, obviously is a very generic descriptive term that means any kind of brain injury in, in 
children. That leads to all kinds of different things, both motor and cognitive or one or the other. And sometimes we do see a dystonic and often chorea-form abnormal movement disorder in these patients. Gotcha. So that's definitely a good thing to consider. And I appreciate you outlining at least the times when you'd really want to start evaluating with additional diagnostics like imaging, particularly in these patients who are having those more acute onsets or subacute onsets or patients with exposures, toxin exposures, and even more of these focal brain injuries that we're worried about, particularly when you're thinking about the basal ganglia structures. And if there's just anything extra, I mean, this is why you want to look for ataxia. You want to look for long track signs. You want to look for all these other things that might make you worry that there's something beyond just a really classic dystonia going on. For sure. Definitely good not to miss anything that could definitely change treatment or at least discussions on prognosis. For some of the other dystonias perhaps worth discussing, I think we've done a good coverage of some of the more adult onset dystonias that are focal. So I think you've alluded to a lot of the test dystonias already, including the musician's dystonias, the writer's cramp, and even some of these running dystonias, as you've mentioned. So in terms of one of the more common dystonias outside of these task-specific dystonias in adults, I was hoping you could maybe provide a little bit more clarity on the subtypes of cervical dystonia that are commonly seen in the clinic. Yeah, so as I said, cervical dystonia is, is something that we very commonly see. And we generally look for abnormal posturing of the head. So uh, we describe it in terms of cullis, right? So, so torticollis is a is a word that I'm sure you've heard, uh, basically used interchangeably with the word cervical dystonia. But tort means turn, so torticollis is is actually describing the turn of the head. Lateralcollis is a tilt of the head to either side. Anterocollis is to the front, and retrocollis is to the back. And then we look also for shoulder elevation of one side or the other. Sometimes patients can have a shift of the entire head to one side or the other. And so uh, so this can be really helpful. I mean, obviously, it's, it's something that we need to figure out if we're going to be doing Botox injections on these patients. And we haven't talked about treatment yet, but Botox injections, especially for a focal dystonia, is really the mainstay of treatment. For generalized dystonias, you can use medications, but for focal dystonias, often you're not going to be getting the amount of relief that you want to get without side effects because all of the dystonia medications, all of them cause sedation. <laughs> so we use the, you know, the pattern of torticollis, lateralcollis, anterocollis, retrocollis, et cetera, to figure out, are we going to target the SCMs, which turn the head? Or are we going to target the splenius or the trapezius or the levator scapulae if they're, you know, if they're shoulder elevation or tilt to one side, i.e. lateral collis? Or if there's retrocollis, are, are you going to target the semispinalis and, and the paraspinal muscles? And if there's anterocollis, are you going to target both SCMs, for example. So each patient is really going to be extremely different in terms of what pattern of Botox we approach them with. And, and this is true of any dystonia, um, limb dystonias, head dystonias, because there can be so many different muscles involved, and it's important to target the muscles that are the problem <laughs> without causing unnecessary weakness or too many side effects. 
for example, putting a, a boatload of Botox in the SCM can cause swallowing difficulty. And obviously that's a problem. So, so uh, one thing that I really like about patients is that I spend time in my Botox clinic really analyzing exactly what their head is doing and trying to come up with very tailored treatment regimens for them. Yeah, and having spent time in that clinic, I very much enjoy your approach. And it's definitely where I've learned a shocking amount of peripheral anatomy and has been very good review. Um, and the additional benefit of being able to hear the dystonic muscle with EMG has also been a quite interesting thing to see. Yeah, I love doing cervical dystonia injections with EMG just because you can get, glean a lot of information about how spontaneously active a muscle actually is with the EMG, and that can in itself inform how much you give to each muscle. Um, and then obviously it, it helps you know that you're in a muscle <laughs> and not in the, you know, the subcutaneous tissue. Now moving, I guess, kind of staying around the face in terms of more broad description of, you know, cranial dystonias, I think maybe just two to mention um, would be maybe blepharospasm and the oromandibular dystonias. Could you just give us a little bit of summary on those? Yeah, blepharospasm is dystonia of the eyes. So these patients get eye closure and they, you know, can't control it. And sometimes this can really have an enormous impact on quality of life. Some people can't drive because their eyes are always closing or trying to close. And it can go along with eye-opening apraxia, actually, um, where once the eyes are closed, they have trouble opening the eyes again. Patients with blepharospasm often also have photophobia, so it can be extremely debilitating. And then there are oromandibular dystonias, which often we think about tardive syndromes with that, with oromandibular dystonias or dyskinesias, right? Tardive dyskinesias. But when you put the two together, if you have blepharospasm and oromandibular dystonia, i.e. you're involving the seventh cranial nerve and the fifth cranial nerve, right? Because the fifth cranial nerve does the mu muscles of mastication. That's called Mage syndrome, where you have a combination uh, blepharospasm and, and oromandibular dystonia. And with oromandibular dystonia, you want to, the tardive patients often have tongue involvement, but if it's just a pure, um, you know, mage syndrome type patient, they may have jaw opening dystonia, or they may have jaw closing dystonia. And so in one, you would target the lateral pterygoids, the jaw opening muscles, or in, in the other, you might target the masseters or the, and or the uh, temporalis muscles. So, so again, it, it can be a very tailored approach depending on the patient. Oh, thank you for going through and clarifying those and also throwing in the addition of Mage syndrome, which is one that I, I would say very infrequently here, but isn't one that I necessarily would be looking for otherwise. So I appreciate that. All right. So I know we wanted to talk a little bit about some of these more pure dystonic syndromes that are genetic. Um, obviously, there are so many of them, but perhaps we can talk about some of the main ones. Where would you like to start, Dr. Schaefer? I think I'll just talk about one. I, I already talked about DYT11, which is the myoclonus dystonia, but DYT1, is, as far as genetic dystonia syndromes are concerned, is, is relatively common, and, and it's important to know about because if somebody has in, uh, an early onset in childhood or adolescence of a generalized dystonia, you know, with trunk involvement, limb involvement, you know, um, generalized as we've defined it um, previously, 
these patients actually respond really well to deep brain stimulation. And some of the other genetic dystonias don't. And so it's something to just think about because in addition to the typical treatments that we might offer for patients, like, you know, medications and Botox, deep brain stimulation outcomes in patients with generalized dystonias are related to the specific genetic diagnosis. Okay. So the key takeaway there is that for DYT1 specifically in this genetic dystonia, they do, they do pretty well with deep brain stimulation down the line. Yes. And maybe one group that doesn't get enough attention, or at least maybe only comes up on tests. I don't think I've ever seen it at least, but in my, you know, extensive three years of training at this point, or perhaps we can talk about some of these paroxysmal dystonias. Yeah, these are weird. I mean, in, in a, in a overarching category of weird, these are weird. <laughs> so, um, so they are classified kind of in terms of what triggers them. So the paroxysmal, they're called paroxysmal dyskinesias because they can have dystonia, they can have uh, chorea, they can have apathosis. So it can be kind of a mixed phenomenology type abnormal movement. And there's paroxysmal non-kinesogenic dyskinesias. So non-kinesogenic meaning that they are not triggered by movement. And then there's paroxysmal kinesogenic dyskinesias, which means they are triggered by movement, usually all of a sudden movement. So, you know, if you ask them to get up from a chair and uh, quickly and walk quickly across the room, that may trigger the attack versus paroxysmal exercise induced dyskinesias, which are more commonly sustained exercise causing movement as opposed to sudden movements causing the kinesogenic Form. And these, there are some, there are some different genetics that might be involved in these, and that can be helpful. But sometimes they, they aren't abnormal in genetic testing. There's various durations of attacks, so you know some of them are minutes, some of them can be up to an hour or multiple hours. You know, it, it sort of depends, and that's something that I think you could probably just look up. And a lot of them are channelopathies, so. You know, just like some of the other abnormal movements uh, that I think we've talked about before, like episodic ataxias are channelopathies. You know, these sort of episodic situations are often channelopathies. So from an etiologic standpoint, definitely good to consider that for more of these genetic causes. And you're saying involving specific channels on the neurons and big groups being the non-kinesiogenic dyskinesias and these more kinesiogenic and exercise-induced dyskinesias. I think those are really good summaries that you were able to provide for us. So I definitely appreciate that. And then finally, to end, now that we've talked about some of these specific dystonias, we've talked about the general classifications of them and the broad definitions of them. Let's talk a little bit about treatment. I know we've discussed probably one of the one of the best ones, at least for these focal and segmental dystonias, being Botox. And we talked about uh, the cervical dystonias. But outside of that, what are some of these more systemic pharmacologic therapies that we can use in patients who perhaps don't suffer from a more focal or segmental dystonia, but perhaps something more multifocal or generalized? Well, I'm just going to reiterate that levodopa is something you want to think about, particularly in the younger population, because if they have an effect, it is drastic and can be life-altering. And so that's not something you want to miss. But outside of that, things that sort of calm down the nervous system, right? So, <laughs> so benzodiazepines uh, are sometimes used. 
uh, muscle relaxants like baclofen, anticholinergic medications like trihexyphenidyl, also called artane. Those are sort of the mainstays of treatment for this. But as you can imagine from, you know, the list that I just gave, they're all sedating. Some of them have anticholinergic side effects and, and cause confusion and dry mouth and all kinds of things. So, so it's, you know, it's just, it's not the best group of medications, which is why if, if it's vocal enough, you want to be really thinking about Botox. And in terms of alternative ways in which we can administer some of these meds, given their sedating effects, I know maybe in the pediatric standpoint, we may see baclofen given via, via pumps and sometimes a little bit of helpful co-management with like maybe physiatry or neurosurgery. Yeah. So baclofen pumps, can be helpful. I, I can't say I have any dystonia patients with a baclofen pump. I usually have spasticity patients with a baclofen pump. In general, something good to know about baclofen pumps is that they're dependent, which means that if the patient is bed bound because they have quadriparesis and spasticity in all four extremities, it's going to work better on both the upper and lower extremities than if they're ambulatory because the baclofen actually floats down, right? It's, and if they're upright, it's going to be dependent and, and help more with leg symptoms than with arms. I don't think I've ever heard that before. I, that is a wonderful clinical pearl. Thank you. <laughs> and I know one thing that we talked about briefly when we were talking about DYT, one particularly, is the utilization of deep brain stimulation. And just maybe to hear it one more time, where, what exactly is the target? for deep brain stimulation in these dystonic patients? So the target is GPI, the globus pallidus interna. And what's really interesting about DBS in dystonia is that, you know, when we do DBS in tremor patients, you turn it on and the tremor goes away, right? It's instantaneous. But with dystonia and GPI stimulation, it's gradual. So over the course of a few months, three months, six months, as you are making adjustments and as the patient is sort of getting consistent electrostimulation from the DBS, it, the dystonia is going to improve. And so that really speaks to whether there is a component of synaptic plasticity going on, as opposed to just the direct stimulation effects that there is, there are actually changes being induced at a, at a synaptic level that is uh, helping with the dystonia. And in terms of actual emergencies or urgency in treating patients with dystonia, are there any concerning presentations that we should be aware of in these patients? Maybe this is probably a little bit more common in our younger generalized dystonic patients. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there are a few kind of dystonia emergencies, right? So one is a drug-induced acute dystonic reaction. So we alluded to this a little bit with patients who receive, you know, metoclopramide or Haldol or something like that. And they develop an acute dystonia, inoculogyric crisis or an acute uh, cervical dystonia as a response to that. And, and the, the classic treatments are cogentin and diphenhydramine for that. And obviously you never give them that medication again, right? And then there are, there's something called status dystonicus or, or a dystonic storm that patients with underlying dystonia can go into horrendous dystonia, very difficult to treat dystonia storms where 
I've, I've seen patients in the ICU with this because they need respiratory support because of the amount of dystonia and or they they're in so much pain that they need to be sedated. The treatments are they're similar, right? You're going to be using anticholinergics, you're going to be using baclofen and clonidine and propofol and, and Versed and whatever else you can use to try to calm down their nervous system in these in these situations. And sometimes there can be a trigger, right? An infection or a fever or med changes or something like that. That needs to be managed as well. And then the third thing that I'd like to mention is that patients with tardive dystonia, if their anti-dopamine medication, like their antipsychotic, for example, is stopped abruptly, they can have an acute worsening of their tardive dystonia. So patients with a little bit of cervical dystonia, if, uh, you know, I've seen it where we say, oh, this is tardive, or somebody decides that it's tardive, and they just stop their antipsychotic medication without tapering. And then all of a sudden, it's like, profound retrocolis, like they can't even eat kind of thing. And so if you identify somebody with a tardive dystonia, uh, tardive syndrome, don't just stop the medication, you need to taper it. If that does happen, and it stopped abruptly, you actually need to add back a little bit of dopamine blockade, um, because they're they're basically withdrawing from it. It's very complicated in terms of Yes, dopamine, no dopamine. What's going on with the dopamine, right? <laughs> but but that is something that we have seen. Gotcha. I think you've provided a very good summary there with dystonia in general. What is going on with the dopamine? It's a little complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the majority of what we wanted to cover. I know this is a, a rather a bit of a bear of a topic to go through. So I appreciate you giving us a bit of an approach and maybe some bite-sized pearls about specific dystonic syndromes and inheritability and genetic conditions that we really need to think about in these patients. So once again, Dr. Schaefer, thank you for your help. You're welcome. I'm glad that, uh, that it made sense to you. <laughs> and hopefully to the rest of the listeners as well. <laughs> hopefully so.